Welcome to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. WellMed Radio will educate you about health and wellness for seniors and their families throughout Bear County in Central Texas. During the next hour, your hosts Ron Aaron and nurse practitioner Cora Zhuk will share information that will help you improve your health and wellness. And now, here's Ron Aaron and Cora Zhuk. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, who is a nurse practitioner with WellMed here in uh, San Antonio and in South Texas. We're delighted in just a moment to welcome a couple of providers from the Dallas area. But before we do that, I, I wanted to catch up with uh, Cora, who is busily working on her doctorate in nurse practitioning to become an administrator. Yes. That is so exciting. Yes. So I'm working on my DNP uh, through UT uh, Health Science Center in Houston or UT Health in Houston. And uh, yes, my DNP is Doctorate of Nursing Practice, but on the executive side. So getting out of practicing uh, full time and converting over to how to manage that practice. And you realize you won't be able to see patients as often. Well, that is true. That That is correct. I, That's either a plus or a minus, depending well, on your outlook. However, I will be able to see patients um, because I still keep my license current. Good. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm really interested and fascinated behind the business of, of how we do healthcare and especially the communication between Medicare and and the standalone or um, group of physicians. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I'm learning so much. Well, we're going to jump, courtesy of the WellMed Radio Hotline, up to uh, South Buckner in Dallas, the WellMed at South Buckner office. And we're joined by a couple of physicians up there, Dr. Rhea Joseph and Dr. Anup Kumar. Both are uh, in that office. Dr. Kumar is a graduate of Oklahoma State Medical School, went undergrad to Oral Roberts University. And Dr. Joseph earned her medical degree from Texas Tech Health Science Center in El Paso, and uh, both of you, welcome to WellMed Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Now, the both of you are uh, providers in that office. How many providers are up there? Uh, we have uh, two physicians and one nurse practitioner. And you're seeing, like most WellMed clinics, predominantly Medicare-eligible seniors and a few who may be younger on disability. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. We do have a good number of uh, commercial non-WellMed patients. Um, but you're right. Day to day, that's what we mostly deal with. So what's interesting about the WellMed model, Ron, is, is you know, we, we have primarily and predominantly been uh, senior focused, you know, and, and it wasn't until this year in 2019 that WellMed has actually changed its focus. And instead of saying providing health care to seniors, now we're providing health care to everyone, to the masses. So WellMed clinics are going to start seeing a lot more commercial patients as we start to participate in the ACO or um, um, the Accountable Care Organization, which was part of the Obama plan um, in making um, health care organizations responsible, just like Medicare Advantage, for that of the commercial population as well. Now, when you say commercial, what do you mean? I mean, people who are working, um, people, you know, that are that are of working age and have Blue Cross Blue Shield or, you know, United Healthcare or Humana plans through their employer. And now there's requirements for preventative medicines such as mammograms and colonoscopies, because they're of those age groups that we can prevent some things from happening when they're seniors if we catch them early now and get them on their preventative programs. It's really funny because it wasn't too many years ago when Medicare would not pay for preventive tests. Isn't it amazing? It's crazy. You're exactly right. And I, I remember when practicing, when Medicare would say that depression, oh, well, if you code depression, it's just depression. And, and you know, we're going to downcode you for everything else that you did. And and now they're starting to evolve and say, we realize that depression makes everything else spiral out of control. So you've got to control that depression. And providers for years have been saying, well, that's what we've been telling you. I don't know why you weren't listening. And now they are. And now they are. And they're, they're putting a big focus and a big push for providers to treat these diseases. We talked last week about ambulatory sensitive care conditions and how access to your physician is, is so important. And that's one of the wonderful things about WellMed is that we open the doors and we understand that patients need to see their doctor when they feel it's necessary. So doctors, uh, uh, Joseph and, and, and Kumar, it could be a law firm, Kumar and Joseph, I like that. <laughs> As you think about uh, one of the uh, topics, and Cora Juke, our nurse practitioner, touched on it, the whole idea of 
colon cancer screening. Uh, it, it is so important and so critical. Uh, and, and yet, are you finding still some resistance on the part of some patients who just don't want to do that? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, it's actually one of my favorite things about WellMed is how much focus they put on preventive medicine. And I believe Dr. Kumar and I are on the same page about this. This is one of the reasons that we came into medicine. It wasn't just to treat conditions after they've occurred, but it's sort of to prevent them from happening to begin with. Now, that's a whole different, I guess, idea for a lot of our patients, especially in the area that we practice. They don't necessarily understand preventive medicine, and it's a lot of education. It's trying to get them to to realize that if we catch it early, the treatments are much shorter, they're much more successful, they tend to work better. And so slowly but surely, you know, we are getting through, but yes, we definitely get a lot of resistance um, about, you know, doing colonoscopy about going and getting their mammograms done because, it, you know, it takes time. It, it takes some effort. But um, I think they're starting to come around a little better now. What's really interesting is what I said last week about that, you know, patients used to tell me all the time, I'll come in when I feel sick. You know, I, I don't think I need to come in every three months to see you. And what I would tell them is, that, you know, or ask them the question, do you take your car to get your oil changed? And they said, yes. I said, do you take it there because there's something wrong with your car? And they'd say, well, no, it's to prevent something from going wrong. Well, why can't we value our lives and bodies the same way that we value our cars and, and get the oil changed on our bodies every three months or just get the, you know, get the spark plugs changed in a tune-up? I have a good friend uh, who's got a Ph.D. In, in English and a double Ph.D. in history who refuses to get a colon screening. He's in his 60s now, uh, clearly in the age group where he should have had a baseline done at 50 or so. Uh, and, and he says, oh, no, that virtual one is the best one. I'm never going to have a actual colonoscopy, and that's it. Do you hear much of that? Oh, yes. We definitely hear a lot of that because the colonoscopy, I think the procedure, they've heard about it. They've heard about it means, you know, that they have to drink this liquid the day before that cleans out their system, which means they're going to be in the bathroom for a long time. They hear the actual procedure, you know, depending on what they find can take some time. You know, the, the anesthesia part scares them. The fact that it's a very invasive procedure. They're using a small little camera to kind of, you know, go up from the bottom so that they can go into the colon and look at every nook and cranny and that's the part i mean for us that works better because there's someone there's a physician there looking in detail but it is a very invasive procedure especially in that particular area that can make it very sensitive for the patient so that's i think the general when they think colon cancer screening that's what they think of i would do it you know i would do it just for the propofol mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes Good luck with that. <laughs> you know, the, surprisingly, most of the resistance I get from my patient is the day before, the prep. Uh, they don't like the prep. They really don't so much mind the colonoscopy. Um, hopefully, one of these days, uh, they'll come come up with some different kind of prep. Hasn't the and, prep gotten better than it are. used to be? They, they are. So, yeah, you know, they as- are better. As a as a former um, operating room nurse, and, and I used to also run a GI lab, we have made great strides with the prep in, in recent years. And, and every every um, gastroenterologist has their particular preferences. Now, the reason why they like the volume of the go lightly, and I, and I call it, I think it's funny, they call it go lightly. And yeah, really but it's, it's go, go heavy. With, go with a vengeance. Um, you know, <laughs> they, they use it because... One, it, it's good on the balance, the um, the electrolyte balance of the colon. You're not just, you know, ridding Washing yourself like a, like a laxative and just, you know, ridding yourself of everything um, and, and as well as your sodium and magnesium and potassium and potentially throwing you into some kind of issue. Um, but they also use the volume, though, to make sure that you're clean because I will tell you the worst thing that you can do is think that you did a prep the night before and get there the next day and then tell you that they cannot do the colonoscopy because there was an incomplete prep. They can't see anything. That's correct. You know, um, 
So They can't get a big hose and just wash you out? Uh, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, so, no, you know, we need to be able to to have a complete clean. Now, there are things, there are, there are smaller preps um, that they're really trying to bring to the market and, and use, but it's on a case-by-case basis because you don't want to give somebody who's elderly something that's going to throw them into a potassium depletion. Well, you know what's interesting, and, and Dr. Joseph and Kumar, I'm sure you see this as well. If folks really understood going in why they need to do the prep, and if there was a way to show them uh, that's the only way to really see what's going on with your colon, maybe they'd be more understanding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, uh, other thing would be uh, the, there are other uh, ways to do a colon cancer screening. I always tell them my best, my best, test is the colonoscopy, but, you know, these days, uh, newer tests out there, they're actually doing a really great job in detecting um, uh, polyps or early, you know, sign of uh, uh, colon cancer. So we are, you know, we have a lot of patients that are opting for that, but the problem with that or the caveat with that, if that comes back positive, they do need to have colonoscopy after that. Uh, so we have a fair number of people who have opted for uh, this uh, test. I don't know if you're supposed to say the company name here. Oh, you but, can. Uh, you Cologuard. can. Uh, What's the name? We've been using Cologuard. Uh, we had a lot of success with that. And uh, Yeah, but your, but your point is, and this is the point I tried to make to my friend who refuses to get a colonoscopy. Uh, yeah, the point is, if they find something using Cologuard or, or some other virtual colonoscopy procedure, then they have to go in anyhow. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a point that I make with the prep. You know, I always tell them if there is any leftover stool in your colon, then chances are that there might be something behind it. You know, that's why we want the prep, because we want to make sure that the stool isn't hiding a little polyp or a little something that shouldn't be there. Right. And we won't be able to see clearly if it's there. So that's the purpose of the, the you know, the, the go lightly. And the, I made sure, you know, that we tell our patients that because of kind of what you said, you know, we have to make sure that they understand why we're giving that to them. It's not because, you know, we want to clean them out or, you know, help them feel light for a couple of days. It's purely so that the GI doctor has good visual, um, you know, visual effects of the colon so that they can make sure that everything is nice and clean. Now, is there a, an age uh, beyond which you say, ah, you don't need a colonoscopy anymore? Usually it's a slow-growing cancer anyhow. So usually, according to USPFTF, that's just our governing body that sets the guidelines. They recommend uh, no screening after age 75. Uh, provided that everything before that has been normal and they don't have any other, you know, uh, any other indication for a colonoscopy, like anemia, for example. So, yes, yeah, 75 would be the cutoff age for most patients. Now, as we, start, as we start to see patients living longer, um, you know, most a lot of us have patients well up into their 90s that are very healthy. Um, it is important to know for patients that your physician will never refuse to order a colonoscopy if it's something that you're adamant about. And and you look, you know, we look at your at your at quality of life and we think and quantity and think, you know, it, it's substantial that you could live to be in your hundreds. So we'll go ahead and order that. So, you know, I've, I've had patients come to me That's and say point. and say, well, they say that I can't have a colonoscopy because I'm 76. And and I use it as a case by case basis. I say, oh, well, this patient's very healthy. Had a patient, um, I think I've shared with you before, he's 98 now and he runs half marathons. So he was one at 76. I would have said, for sure, you need a colonoscopy because Absolutely. he was healthy. You know, so it's a case by case basis. But yeah, after 75, you know, if, if it's something you don't want to do anymore, that's okay. I'm rabid about getting a colonoscopy because I've got a a former friend who passed away from colon cancer uh, who did not get a colonoscopy until it was too late. And and when they finally, he finally agreed to get one, uh, he had colon cancer. It had gone, perforated the colon, uh, and he did not live very long. So I'm a big believer in in colonoscopies. Yes, absolutely. I mean, all cancers, of course, it's not very comfortable or easy to, to, to hear that diagnosis, but colon cancer for sure in particular is a little harder to treat and a little harder to get through. It's actually the second um, type of cancer that causes death. 
it's the second one. Really? You know, so it's fairly high up there. And yet, it grows so and slow. Yet, if everybody got screened, uh, you'd reduce that number. Oh, absolutely. And you know, the nice, well, nice thing, but if you have a cancer, it's never nice. But the thing about early detection is the treatment is very uh, simple, of course, in the quote unquote. They can uh, dissect it out, and most patients in early stage doesn't even need a chemo radiation. All right, hold that and, thought. We're, g- we're going to come right back to you. I don't mean to interrupt you. Train keeps moving here on WellMed Radio on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, and we're talking on our WellMed Radio hotline up at the uh, WellMed at Buckner, South Buckner in Dallas Clinic, Dr. Rhea Joseph and Dr. Anoop Kumar. Carol Zorniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, thank you so much for being with us here on WellMed Radio on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. By the way, podcasts of all of our shows are available and if you want to listen to one of the podcasts, just Google WellMed Radio Podcasts, and I guarantee you they will pop up. Or you can hear us on the radio, that old-fashioned radio, either in your car or at home. And we air at 5 p.m. Sundays on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Cora Juke, our co-host here on WellMed Radio. She is a nurse practitioner. We were talking on our WellMed Radio hotline up in the WellMed Clinic in Dallas, the South Buckner Clinic. With uh, we got two today, two physicians, Dr. Rhea Joseph and Dr. Anup Kumar, uh, both are practicing at that clinic, and we were talking about colonoscopies and how important that screening is. I, I want to shift gears for just a minute and and ask you about prostate screening. There's all kinds of question about like with colonoscopies, at what age should we stop doing a digital exam on on prostate cancer for males? And I wonder what you all do. So. Technically, I think the, the correct sort of word-for-word answer is that we usually check PSA, okay? So it's a, it's a blood test. We check to see if it's greater than four. That is the cutoff to see if your prostate, you know, antigen's a little high. If it's higher than four, then we go ahead and send you to the urologist for, um, you know, an ultrasound, a physical examination to see if they need a biopsy. Now, the age cutoff for that, um, it, it varies, okay? So I, I've heard different things, but as of now, 70 seems to be the cutoff. So they say because prostate cancer is such a slow-growing cancer that after the age of 70, if you get prostate cancer, chances are that you will pass away from something else before the prostate cancer can really yep. take effect. What is Cora pointed out, we're living longer. Mm-hmm. So exactly. you know, it's a case-by-case case so basis. You have that discussion with the patient, and it, it, it comes with when you start screening for it as well. You know, you, you have that discussion with the patient. You find out their family history. You find out their personal history. And if they don't have a lot of medical problems, you know, they don't have, you know, end-stage kidney disease or end-stage heart problems, then at that point you, you discuss with them and ask them what their opinion is because there isn't a clear-cut answer for that. Yeah. And Basically, like Corey mentioned, if it seems like they have a higher life expectancy, you can absolutely check it. We also know you, that you know, uh, PSA they, they gives... I mean, the, the governing body, like USPFTF, their recommendation is age 50 or some age 45. You start having a discussion, not necessarily ordering the test, but having a discussion mm-hmm. with them about prostate cancer. This is where you start to find out 
more information about their family history and especially certain race. African American have a higher race of prostate cancer. So it will vary. And uh, the reason we have discussion with them because a lot of times PSA may be elevated without anything in your prostate. You know, other things can elevate your PSA. And that could lead into doing some unnecessary biopsies and procedures that they did not need. I was going to so, say PSA often gives a false positive. Well, but that's, that's part of asking patients what, you know, we, we do a lot of screenings as far as urinary incontinency and incontinence and um, dribbling and, and asking men what their symptoms are. And that's where that, that good old-fashioned, you know, discussion with the patient as well as the physical exam comes into play. So, you know, what's what's important for men to know, though, is... They used to shy away from getting from going to the doctor to discuss prostate health because they always figured they were going to get a DRE or a digital rectal exam, and a lot of men do not want that. What we know now is that is not necessary in the primary care setting. We let the specialist take care of that. When it comes to screening, just a good old-fashioned screening, that is not such an invasive test. We're screening you just like we do for diabetes through your blood work. So it's making the conversation a whole lot easier and making the cell for prostate screening a whole lot easier from the PCP standpoint to the patient to say, hey, listen, this is something we can do in your blood. Now, there are, there are, there are false positives. And and there, you know, is a positive, but we need to figure which one out. We'll do that based on what you're telling us and what we come up with as a collective group. But the screening itself is not painful. It's not embarrassing. So it's one of those things we just need to get out, get the information out there to men so that they come in to get screened. Well, it's not invasive. Correct. I mean, I mean, blood work, yes, to stick a needle in your vein and, and collect blood. Yeah. But most people are doing that anyway. Um but a, a, if you can convince them that you don't have to do a, a digital rectal exam, it's an easier sell. It's a, it's a much easier sell. And, and doctors, uh, Joseph and, uh, and Kumar, uh, if we could switch to women for a moment, because uh, for the women you're seeing, uh, not all, but, but some who are Medicare eligible, well, what's the status of doing a mammogram? So it's, it's the same in terms of um, screening the end date, I'm sorry, the end age is 75, but it, it kind of goes along with the same thing. You know, life expectancy is much, much higher. So you have to have, there, there is a clear-cut age that we discuss with the patient, but we base it on a case-by-case series. So we talk to them, do you have a family history? Have you had abnormal mammograms in the past? Do you feel comfortable stopping uh, mammograms at the age of 75? And if any of those answers means we still keep getting the yearly mammogram, then we'll go ahead and do that. Um, the only time that I recommend, you know, a hard stop at 75 is if they have, you know, um, really progressed chronic illnesses um, and all of their mammograms prior to this was absolutely normal. There's no family history, so we don't have to worry about any genetic variations. Then at that point, you know, it's, it's, it's not the most comfortable exam. Um, Corey, I don't know if you've ever had a mammogram, but from what patients have uh. told me, <laughs> it's not the most comfortable <laughs> test. And so if we can subject them if, or if we can try and stop from subjecting them to such a, a painful exam, then, you know, I try to. But if there's even one little pointer that says, you know what, maybe they can develop breast cancer later in their life, we'll go ahead and screen them. Well, we hear that literally from every woman who's ever had a mammogram. And I guess from the male perspective, why do uh, those doing the exam have to squeeze that breast so hard? Yeah, and you know, some of it with with age, um, there's changes in the breast, there's fibroglandular changes, and the machine is just trying to do its job, right? You're just trying to make sure that it's looking very much in detail to make sure that it doesn't miss a small little lump, because sometimes that's all it takes. It has to so, cover as much breast tissue as it possibly can and, and get the mm-hmm. best look that it possibly can. When, when we're talking about, though, you know, getting patients to do these screening tests. One thing that I ask them and, and, you know, no, I have not had my mammogram yet. I still have the orders and I keep getting called all the time to get it scheduled, but uh, that's a side note. <laughs> so, uh, but, oh, you know, it gives thing, me something to bug you about I know. Now. So one time, you know, what I, what I really try to explain to my patients when they're, they're kind of resistant to the screening is I say, okay, 
So if I told you tomorrow that you had breast cancer and I delivered this devastating blow, what would you want to do about it? And they, if they tell me, well, I'd want you to save whatever I could save my life. Um, I'd want to go through with, with the, with the treatment. And then I tell them, well, then we need to do the screening test because I can't do treatment or can't order treatment, um, until I know that something is or isn't there. So if, if you tell me though, that I'd be okay and I don't want anything done, well, then we don't do the screening test. But when it comes to you telling me that you want to see your grandchildren, you know, grow up and get married or graduate high school and have grandchildren or, or whatever, then that tells me that you are an advocate for the screenings. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. It is. Now, are we making uh, uh, access to mammograms more accessible to folks? Oh, absolutely. It's, um, and, you know, in terms of the comfortable part of it, they were actually making some changes in that area, too. So, Corey, there's actually a place called Solis. Um, I think I'm saying that correctly. Their machines are a little bit more concave so that the breasts fit better. So they're not squeezing as much. It's not as painful. And we've had a couple of patients tell us that they really like it. Now, the guard, you know, sort of the garden variety mammograms that we do now tend to be covered easier. That's the only thing that is a little bit of a setback is that, you know, the fancier machines might not be covered and price points might change based on right. your insurance. It's like the open-sided, uh, open-sided uh, MRI. It, it's a lot more comfortable for the patient. Yeah, we don't. Uh, MRI is not covered for uh, breast cancer screening, but I think this is where the right. patient needs to be empowered uh, by their provider. They need to sit down and say, "Hey, what are the options do I have for these screening?" And uh, provider should be able to give them different options. Uh, whether it's covered by insurance or not covered by insurance, that way, patient can make uh, educated uh, decision. Um, so we, we have very few patients that end up doing a solis test. I, I think it's because of the cost and how far this, uh, this imaging center is. But other places, it might be something close to uh, the clinic, easily accessible. So something to talk to a primary care doctor about. Sure. The beauty of WellMed and, and WellMed providers is utilizing this shared decision-making model. And, and that is, you know, so important because as we talked last week and we asked the physician, you know, do you, do you are your patients on a conveyor belt and do they come in quickly? And, and he said, no, you know, I, I have plenty of access. That's what's so important is being able to have the time to sit down with your patient and offer them all of the different options available in their care or in their screenings. And together, the physician and the patient collaborate in order to make the right decision for that patient, because that right decision might not be the right decision for the next patient. So there's some some beauty in being able to spend that time. And I, I know the WellMed providers are granted that opportunity to really spend time to make sure that their patient patients are all well-informed and can make the best decisions. So, Dr. Kumar and, and uh, uh, doc, Dr. Joseph, just a really a personal question that to each of you to answer separately, and that is, what is it about seeing predominantly seniors that you enjoy in your practice? Uh, and as you look at expanding it to again the, the you know much broader population, will you miss just seniors? So I think one of my favorite things about seeing seniors is um, they're quite a bit more complicated than, say, the, the younger patients, right? They tend to have more medical problems. They're on more medications. And so they it does challenge me a little bit more. Um, a lot of them have great stories. So the appointments are much more fun because they're talking about their grandkids or their past. We have quite a bit of veterans who come here. So, I, you know, on a personal level, I like I like being able to hear those stories, and on a professional level, level, I love that they're a little bit more complicated, and they challenge me on a day-to-day basis. And Dr. Yeah, Kumar? For, yeah, for, personally for me, you know, I was pretty close to my grandparents, and uh, not everybody is my grandparents' age here, so that really most of the elderly patients would remind me of uh, my, you know, grandparents. And so I actually have very... Uh, uh, 
pretty good time visiting them. And especially many of them don't have to go back to job or work. They're retired, so they have a lot of free time. <laughs> they they can, come to chat with us. They sit down and they, we actually talk about everything. So I feel like having a visit to my grandparents uh, every time I see them. Um, yes, we do like, we are both internal medicine trained doctors, so we more used to see a lot more complicated in you know, a hospital patient. So we do enjoy that part. Uh, we get to, we like challenge. So, um, What's what's wonderful about about our patients is it's social hour when they come to to see their their you know PCP it they enjoy it and I know I know the um, the names of the grandchildren and where they go on vacation and they know the names of my kids and we share you know stories and pictures back and forth and it feels as if I'm taking care of a family member and that's what you want as a patient you want somebody who loves you and cares about you just like they do their grandparents to treat you because then you feel like you're getting extra special care and they're going to go out of their way to make you feel good. And you feel like you're not just a number. Correct. Correct. So that's really exciting. I I love to hear the stories about why you guys chose senior medicine and, and how, you know, how you've come to just really enjoy this population because you're right. It is a very complicated, complex population and our job as providers is to keep these patients out of the hospital when they have these extensive collaborating comorbid conditions that are doing everything that they can to put them in the hospital. So, you know, it's such a unique position that we're in to be able to treat these patients and keep them out and keep them healthy and keep them active in their community. Do you all uh, have children? Uh, no, <laughs> neither one of us do. I, I, I have was a just dog, if that counts. <laughs> a dog. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, dogs are great, and yes. they keep you good company. Yes. I, I was asking because if you had children, would you encourage them to go into medicine, realizing they'd have to make that choice themselves? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I like a lot of people ask me if I were to do all over again, would I do the medicine? I say yes, absolutely, and I will go into primary care. And I, I really enjoy it, and I would, you know, I think my children, that's what I would tell them to more focus on primary care. And, um, yeah, I will. Dr. Joseph? So my husband's a dentist, and um, I think we both argue quite a bit about who has the better job. <laughs> huh. So I think it's children come into play, I think they'll have to listen to both of us and see how our day-to-day, you know, activities go and sort of make that decision. But I love what I do. If I had to do it all over again, if someone asked me, would you go back to medical school, do those four years? Would you go back to residency, do those three years? Would you do it again? I absolutely do. Um, I think it gave me enough education to know all the details, right? And so I think it's both with theory and with patient care. So I think Internal medicine doctors are trained for both of those, um, and I wouldn't change it for the world. I was talking to someone the other day, and, and although the show is no longer on the air, I used to love watching House, uh, if either of you remember that show, which I dealt with a physician, and every week it was some incredibly weird, out-of-this-world diagnosis, and the format was they almost kill the patient, and then they save the patient week after week after week. Uh, and, and as you deal with your patients, uh, as I listen to you with the complex nature uh, of some of the challenges they face, uh, you're like mini houses diagnosing uh, week after week challenges that the patients have. Yes, and I think that show, it, it, um, it's kind of like you said, I, I don't think House is a good doctor because he almost has to kill the patient before figuring out the answer. And I hope most of us don't have to do that. But it is interesting. It's, it's like a, a, a little puzzle, a puzzle that you, you know, you gather information, you figure out what's going on. And when you, and you know, we were both in the hospital up until maybe about a year ago. So I think it had more to do with hospital medicine than primary care medicine, but uh, it definitely kept us on our toes. It kept us reading. It kept us studying. It kept us talking to more patients over and over again because everyone presents differently. Um, and how I, I've watched every episode of House. I, I love how they, you know, how complicated the cases are, but sometimes it's not the same. And sometimes I think television makes it a little bit unrealistic for patients, you know, like the fact that they shock when Patients are in a facility, and that's not what we do. So some of the TV shows, they make it unrealistic. I think they put ideas in patients' 
head that isn't actually what we do in real life. So there's, you know, there's right. good and bad. Well, it's TV. If you just joined us, by the way, you're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, <laughs> The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking on our WellMed Radio hotline with Dr. Rhea Joseph and Dr. Anup Kumar. Both are in the WellMed at South Buckner in Dallas Clinic. And our co-host, Cora Juke, is uh, with us as well. You know, I, I think it's just hitting on that that TV versus, you know, reality. I, I, I laugh because... I used to work in the OR for many, many years, and Grey's Anatomy was the was the show of choice at, at the time, and and still you know, is well, true. It was in its infancy back then, um, but. You know, patients would ask, well, are those really things that happen in the OR? And I'd say, well, you know, first and foremost, the OR is pretty pretty much the most lit up place in the entire world. I mean, it, it, it the beacon, you know, light can be seen from, you know, the satellite unless we're doing a laparoscopic case. So, no, nothing's in the dark. And, and yes, there is that much drama in medicine. Yes, there is. But, but we really don't let the patient see that aspect of it. What I right. love, What I love, though, about about primary care and um, internal medicine is you never know what's behind door number one. And so, like you said earlier, every patient presents so differently and you just never know. You might get, you know, three heart failures in a row and one is what I call circling the drain. It sounds terrible, but, you know, they're at the point where they're almost on death's door. And then another patient who's, you know, doing well and thriving and taking their medicine. So you just never know what's behind door number one. So it really is such a challenge in your mind. And you're so stimulated that you use every single sense in internal medicine and, and you know, primary care that you're you're having to put on your specialist hat as well and know what is practicing at the best scope of your, you know, top of your license and within your scope to know, do you refer or is this something I can treat in the office? And most of the times, it's if it's caught early enough, it's something we can treat in the office, which keeps the patient from having to pay a copay. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. So are you all seeing any measles up there among uh, uh, the population of children? We're seeing more and more down here in San Antonio because of the anti-vaxxers. Yes. So um, because our clinic is so, um, I guess, mostly adults, we don't see any children, no children whatsoever. We're both internal medicine uh, trained, not family medicine. Um, and because the well model is mostly geriatrics, you know, definitely not seeing any kids. Um, right. I haven't heard of any in the Dallas area. Um, I have been keeping up with the news about, you know, the overall count going up, but I'm sorry I don't have the answer to that. No, that's okay. I was just curious because uh, no. most of your population had measles as kids. Yeah. And yes. so that immunity is stuck with them uh, versus vaccinated. I Absolutely. do. I do know, though, that, you know, of course, this is not talking about measles and diseases that have since been, you know, what we considered terminated and, and now they're back or suppressed now. But think about the flu. I mean, these are things that affect our seniors. Pneumonia affect our seniors. So we do have seniors who are anti-vaxxers when it comes to giving any type of vaccine. So whether they're their child, you know, and, and grandchildren are not getting their vaccines, uh, they'll come and they'll say, well, I can't get the flu vaccine because of X, Y, and Z. It'll give me the flu or so-and-so had this reaction. And like we talked about last week with people with COPD, if you don't get the flu vaccine, that could be the difference between life and death for you or the pneumonia vaccine. That could kill you. And so you have to really kind of play bad cops sometimes and put it in perspective that you can die, and you can die quickly um, for them to understand. And you don't want to have to. You don't want to have to use those kind of tactics all the time. But sometimes you have to. That's a really good point. I yeah. hadn't, I hadn't thought about it. When I think of anti-vaxxer, I think of, you know, the bad parent who's putting their kid at risk. But they grow up to be anti-vaxxer adults. Yes, absolutely. Right. And they I don't think like flu shots. Reasoning is a little different. So I feel like you know the anti-vaxxer moms, right? That's that's who you hear about. Right. Their reasoning is very very much autism related or some or developmental right. issues, and, and that's why they don't want to give vaccines or you know these diseases used to exist before. I used to have chickenpox. Why do I need to vaccinate my kids? I think that's sort of the thought process with pediatrics. But with adults, I think it's very similar to what um, she had just said. It's I got the flu shot last year and then ended up with the flu, you know, which 
Last year's flu shot had missed quite a bit of strains. And when things like that happen, it's much harder for us to educate the patients and say, you know, this actually is good for you. Yes, last year's batch was a little different and didn't cover all the strains, but this year's should be better. It's better safe than to be sorry. So it's a different kind of conversation. It's not so much, you know, detrimental developmental problems, but yes, your COPD exacerbations will be much worse. There are there was, in fact, I think there was a 30-year-old in Dallas who passed away from the flu this season, and that happened very early on. So I was able to use that example quite a bit. Yeah, flu does uh, kill. But I think the reasoning is a little different between adults and, and peds cases. You know, I had the flu a few, actually, about a month ago, um, late, late flu, and, and my, neither one of my children had it. I just contracted it, and, and I thought I had been doing everything that I possibly could. I got my flu vaccine back in October. Well, excuse me. Me, you walk into clinics filled with people who are sick in the lobby. Right, but we, we take precautions and we wash our hands mm-hmm. and we practice good hygiene. But it happens, right? Flu right. is everywhere in the You're community. Exposed. H-E-B or the grocery store, Walmart or wherever yeah. you go. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I remember the fever that overtook me and the feeling of just full body aching and pain. And for our seniors who are so fragile, I cannot imagine them feeling the way I do or the way I did. And so that's the selling point for me is I felt so bad. I felt like I was on death's door. For these people who might they be, could be close to death's door, I don't want to send them over the edge. And so I really try to tell them, look, I don't want the fevers the worst, and I don't want you to experience that. I can't guarantee that you're not going to get the flu, mm. but I can I can give you a, a good fighting chance against it. Well, share yeah, with there's us. There's so many different strains, and you know the vaccine is never going to cover all of them because these viruses are smart. They're changing. They're changing to being, you know, avoiding um, being affected by the vaccine. So we have to change our ways, which is why the flu shot is different every year. Um, so that's what I tell my patients. I tell them, you know, we might not be able to get every single strain, but you will be protected from a good chunk of them. And I had the flu as well. My husband and I both had it last year. I, you know, we're, we're very much not couch potatoes, but those two weeks, I don't think we moved from the couch. Wow. So, you know, personal anecdotes, little stories definitely help with patients as well. Talk to us a bit about of the vaccines that you do recommend for your patients, we've sort of touched on them. Pneumonia, certainly the flu vaccine. Uh, shingles, of course, has a new vaccine. What, what do you tell your patients? So those are the three big vaccines that we do here in clinic. So the pneumonia one, it, there's a part one and a part two. There's a 13 and 23. And so based on what the patients have, so if they have, you know, um, diabetes or COPD, anything that kind of brings your immune system just a little below Um, those who don't have those conditions, then the age is a little different. But um, those are the three biggest vaccines that we recommend in clinics. So flu shot every year, pneumonia 13 and 23, based on your age, it usually starts at about 65. Um, Depending on after your first one, you have to wait a year before you get 23. But of course, all of these have little exceptions, including the age, depending on what you have, um, depending on how severe your respiratory problems in the past, so based on all of that, we follow an algorithm for the, the pneumonia vaccines and then the shingles one as well. Um, those are the big three that we do for adults. One of the ones that, that is now very prevalent is um, that, that we need to talk about as well is the whooping cough vaccine. You know, we do offer that as well. And it's a combination um, Mm -hmm. vaccine in the office because this population that we take care of of seniors, they're starting to have grandchildren. And in order to go to the hospital and visit your grant, your newborn grandchild, you need to be able to um, prove prove that you've been vaccinated against the whooping cough. So that's one that I have heard quite a bit come up. combo with tetanus? Yes. So it's called a Tdap. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination and, you know, most of us have gotten it a long time ago, but recently, you know, a lot of our elderly are starting to come in and say, hey, listen, my my child told me that in order to go to the hospital, I have to have this vaccine. Do you have it? And the answer is yes. We do keep that in the office for you for, for convenience as well. And, and again, tetanus shot is another one. Um, it always drives me nuts 
when patients will come in and say, I think I need a tetanus shot. I stepped on a rusty nail, you know, five weeks ago. And I think, <laughs> okay, we're probably out of the tetanus period at this point. Um, and But that's a great opportunity for me to be able to talk to them about, you know, checking their feet with diabetes and things like that, you know, for prevention. But um, mm-hmm. five weeks later is probably not the most appropriate time to come to your office. And- no, but that's yeah. also the question. <laughs> Nobody knows the answer to that question. Gee, when was your last tetanus shot? Hell, I don't know. Nobody remembers. <laughs> but it would be in my oh, WellMed record. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It would be in the WellMed record. It would be in your. It should be yes, in any yes, of your medical right. records. That's cool. Now we're going to uh, do a little business here and come right back to you in just a couple of moments. And uh, we really enjoy talking to the two of you. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Don't go anywhere, Doctor Joseph and uh, Doctor Kumar. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Cora Chu. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS on air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, every Sunday, every Sunday you have an opportunity not only to listen to this program, WellMed Radio, at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer, but... We're followed by Caregiver SOS on air at 6 p.m. So Sunday afternoons, late afternoon, you get two hours of great radio courtesy of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and WellMed Medical Management. I'm Ron Aaron. If you just joined us, our co-host, Cora Juke, nurse practitioner, is here as well. And we're talking on our WellMed radio hotline with a couple of physicians up at the South Buckner Dallas WellMed Clinic. We're talking with Dr. Rhea Joseph and Dr. Anup Kumar. And before we run flat out of time, I want to come back to something that we were talking about earlier, and, and that is when you begin to see patients for the first time. We had talked about uh, the kind of practice that you both have, predominantly uh, Medicare-eligible seniors. Uh, what is it you look for when that patient first walks into the exam room? Or I guess it's the other way around. They're in the exam room when you walk in. What are you looking for? So if the patient has never been here before and this is their first, first visit, the first thing I'm looking at are all of their medications. You know, of course, you know, the pleasantries and we get through that, you know, bonding time, of course. But I think the the biggest thing that I'm looking at are their medications because most patients don't exactly remember every medical problem that they have. But by looking at the meds, I can decide for about 90, 95% of it. Mm. So we'll start there. Um, We talk about their medical history, who they were seeing before me, um, if they have any particular questions about how our clinic works. And then at that point, you know, I get baseline labs. So blood work just to see how everything is going with them. That that way I have the most updated information. We meet one week after that. I would say that is probably the most important appointment. At that point, I have all the information that I need from them. Within that week, I've requested records from their previous PCPs. I've checked to see, you know, I, I, I have a checklist that I go through in my mind in terms of, okay, mammogram, check, you know, colon cancer screening, check. Are all their vaccinations up to date? Check. Their medications, are they supposed to be on this one? Are they not supposed to be on this one? I go back, refer to their labs, check to see, well, you know, this medication's not good for their kidneys, their kidney numbers don't look good. So that's the appointment that I kind of put all of those together. And then, of course, Corey, you know, we're very big on focus of care. So between the first and second visit, you know, we make sure that they, um, have all their questionnaires. So, you know, depression screening, urinary incontinence screening, smoking history, all of those questionnaires taken care of as well, so that all the visits after that will go much, much smoother. 
And from your standpoint, are there sort of uh, uh, warning signs that pop up if they say they were a smoker? Does that mean you, you're looking for something else? If they say, you know, uh, mostly men, not women, but, you know, I've been chewing tobacco for a long time. Uh, if they talk about, you know, I'm having trouble feeling stuff in my feet, what sets off your radar? Yeah, we, you know, we do a screening test uh, we, for neuropathy and also for uh, vessel blood flow. I'm trying to use a layman language here. I'm assuming that a lot of our patients are listening to this. Yeah, well, neuropathy so, uh, meaning no feeling. Yeah, in... so neuropathy and then for uh, blood flow in your legs, uh, specifically in your legs. So right. we check, we call it quantum flow. So that was our screening test. We do that once a year uh, with the, for the patient who don't have those diagnoses. And neuropathy helps us detect early changes in the nerves. And uh, these changes could cause the patient to feel numbness and even develop some wounds uh, mm. because of lack of feeling, and which can lead to uh, infections and sometimes even amputation. Uh, and for a quantum flow, that's a blood flow test in your legs, and that's the one very important for especially somebody in history of smoking. And we do that for everybody that comes here once a year screening test, but uh, we really are watching out for a patient with tobacco use history. Uh, that helps them know that any significant blockages in their vessels and what are the lifestyle changes that we need to make. If there any intervention they might need, if the blockages look you know, bad or they have symptoms with it, then we may even do a further test and do ultrasound of the leg, see how bad the blockage is. So these tests could be a, a limb-saving test and even life-saving test in right. some patients. All right. Got to stop you right here. We are flat out of time. I've enjoyed talking to both of you, and we appreciate you coming on, Dr. Joseph, Dr. Kumar. You find them at uh, WellMet at South Buckner up in Dallas, Texas. Thanks to both of you. Thank you so much for having us on the show. Yes, okay. Pleasure. You all take care. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke. You hear WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer, and we will talk with you soon. You've been enjoying WellMed Radio, an exclusive presentation of WellMed Medical Management. Join us next week for more on your health and well-being. For more information on WellMed or to hear this broadcast again, go to wellmedmedicalgroup.com. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio.